Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Clear and Convincing, the show that looks at criminal cases from the perspective of the courts, not the court of public opinion. We're Lisa O'Brien, podcasting from New Orleans, Louisiana, where the New Orleans Saints will face the Minnesota Vikings in the Superdome for the first preseason game on Friday, August 9th, 2019, and Michael Carnahan from Little Rock, Arkansas, where Attorney General Leslie Rutledge has launched a campaign to stop robocalls, and spoofing calls in the natural state. Tonight, we'll begin our three-episode look at Edward Wayne Edwards. A retired detective from Montana believes that Edward Edwards began killing in 1945 and continued until his arrest in 2009. We'll look at the allegations made to support the theory that this detective uh, crafted and the known facts of the murders during the 1940s and 1950s, most of which were high-profile cases with intense media interest. As always, we are a live show, and calls are welcome. Our phone number is 347-989-1171. Good evening, Michael. Good evening, Lisa, and I can hear the dread in your voice. I've been looking forward to this for I don't know how long, but I can understand why you haven't. I mean, I, I, this is going to be a rabbit hole. I texted you earlier this morning, and you said I'm going to try my best to climb my way out. Let's see, let's see if we can do it. We can hope. Yeah, it's it was. Um, it took me a long time to finish. It was always me, or whatever the title of of uh, Detective Cameron's book is. Because it it's very difficult for me at times to suspend my disbelief. Mm-hmm. And especially the cases that I know about, Black Dahlia. Um, you know, I probably researched Black Dahlia before Cameron knew what it was because he and I are in the same age. And I did a lot mm-hmm. of research on it back in 1982 when we were approaching like the 35th anniversary of the murder, which remained unsolved. 
So, seeing as how, without jumping, you know, too far into the rabbit hole and, uh, you know, jumping too far ahead in what we're going to talk about tonight, real quick, uh, one of my thoughts is whenever I uh, I read an excerpt from, obviously, his timeline here on coldtapecameron.com, and, you know, he, uh, I remember in our interview with him, he mentioned that Edwards was very active on message boards and things like that. What did he ever go into, uh, and it's me, Edward Wayne Edwards, did he ever go into any group uh, that these guys were actually him on these message boards? And what, is, what do you believe, if it is true, that it was him on the message board? What do you believe uh, made him want to write these things on the message boards? I don't believe that it was him on the message boards. The... Part of Cameron's book that kind of dealt with that theory, he had a list of different screen names and had some IP addresses, I guess, that were IP addresses shown on the boards for those screen names. But in my review of that list, there were no common IP addresses. Okay. Which would suggest that the people using those screen names were different people. Um, the also the okay. other thing, if it really was Edwards, why would he use all these different screen names? I mm-hmm. use KMA three six seven on a lot of the discussion boards. I've been using that for twenty years, and I post on various forums. I always post this KMA367. I've never posted under any other screen name. So why would he use, and some of these things, WebSleuth and some of the platforms probably shared, if I have to do a new, if I had to go to a new board with a different host, I still use KMA367. Well, I mean, so why would he the thought that occurred to me, and playing devil's advocate, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be advantageous if he's you know revealing all this crap or what have you, and he's quote unquote uh, confessing? Wouldn't it be advantageous for him to protect his identity to be able to change his say his IP address? Well, no, but I mean you can't change your IP address. Your IP address is assigned by your internet okay. carrier you know, when you go to the message board. Um, oh, okay. But no, I mean, changing the screen names, yeah, but the excerpts that he used, again, I think he he had confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Let's, you know, full disclosure right now, I think he had confirmation <laughs> bias. He saw what he wanted to see, thought mm-hmm. what he wanted to th- think and found proof where there was none. Okay. And once again, I apologize for jumping ahead a little bit, but I figured I'd go ahead and get that devil's advocacy out of the way. (laughs) Right. But, you know, again, I, I, I just don't see why, if he really was this, you know, crafty master serial killer, why wouldn't he post in all these different forums where he's allegedly 
taking responsibility for the crimes, and why wouldn't he post under one name? Well, and I remember one. And when you look at the names, the names aren't even close. It's not like he does Joe one two three, and then on another board he's Joe Blow one. Well, and you know the, where there's you know, like. I remember, and I know we're not getting into this case tonight, but I remember him uh, talking about Zodiac, and he said he would post on uh, message boards talking about Zodiac. But didn't the Zodiac yeah. killer talk them and, you know, kind of hide in plain sight? So that's kind of opposite of the uh, MO well, of Zodiac. Again, you know, I have to, I have to go uh, – maybe we're jumping a little bit ahead, but I have to say mm-hmm. when you look at the composite pictures of the – the Zodiac killer from the original investigation during that time, that mother sucker looked like a lot of men in that age group. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, and, and frankly, I don't find that Edwards really resembles those. He'll have pictures of Edwards in a composite, the composite has glasses. Edwards isn't even wearing glasses in the picture. Right. Right. So how do you get that, you know, and Ed, so Edwards had one of those faces that a lot of men in that era had. My dad had that. Mm-hmm. You know, so, um, you know, the whole white Anglo-Saxon Protestant Look. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I mean, but, that's one um, of the reasons why I'm glad we're doing this type of this uh, show here, doing this, even though it's driving you crazy having to read his book, uh, is because well, I, you know, we are I, able to step back <clears throat> and look at it from a reasonable point of view, too. Right. Correct. Correct. So yeah, so we're we're gonna get this three episodes. And then we're going to talk about Larry Swearingen. Um, he will either have been executed or he will have gotten a stay. Mm-hmm. And I think that when we talk about Larry Swearingen, we're going to talk about why his claims in all of his post-conviction and DNA testing requests were rejected by the courts because I think we kind of glossed over some of those things in trying to talk about the case as a whole. So I mm-hmm. think we're going to specifically look at why the court, including citing from the court decisions of why the federal court or the uh, Court of Criminal Appeals said Larry Swearingen isn't entitled to a new trial on this issue because. Mm-hmm. So um, that's the plan. Okay. Well, let's rock with some new. Games. And now, one other thing, um, our show next week that is going to have to be on Monday, correct? Correct. Okay. Just confirming that I got that right. <laughs> All right. So uh, we do have a few quick new developments that I wanted to uh, touch on first. Uh, In Rodney Reed, the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals has requested a response to the state's writ of prohibition from Judge Douglas Shaver, 
who is the judge overseeing the case in in Bastrop County. Um, And that was due on August 5th, 2019. Um, It probably won't make it onto the Court of Criminal Appeals website for a short time. Um, Once it does, I'll download it. If I have to order it, I'll order it. Uh, And then Reed's family and supporters protested last week at the state capitol in Austin, including in front of the governor's mansion. Um, They're Mm -hmm. under the mistaken belief that they can bully officials in Bastrop or Texas to give Reed a new trial based on their bullying rather than on the merits of the evidence Uh uh, of his alleged actual innocence. Um, So that, that's something everybody has a right to protest, but you're wasting your time. Right. In that particular, just as going to the U S Supreme court, the U S Supreme court is not going to come out, you know, justice, John Roberts is not going to come out on the steps and say, y'all have a problem in Texas. I'm going to fix it for you. That isn't going to happen. Uh Um, They should let Reed's attorneys who right now haven't done anything. They still haven't filed any of the alleged uh, motions or, or claims or uh, actions or causes of action that they have said they can file after Reed's uh, relief was denied back in June. Uh-huh. And in a similar vein, Larry Swearingen, who is scheduled to be executed on August 21st, uh, his attorneys have claimed in the media that they will be filing new writs challenging the scientific evidence used to convict Swearingen, which will include the uh time of death evidence and they're going to challenge the use of the cell tower evidence which was used to place swearing and going toward the uh, forest national forest where Melissa Trotter's body was found and they also Mm -hmm. apparently have new experts who say that the alleged the the pantyhose that allegedly fit together like a puzzle didn't really fit together. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to file those experts' claims. Um, first of all, they are less than 30 days from execution, and they haven't filed anything yet. I think what they're doing is they're going to wait until the seven days before the execution date, and then they're going to file it trying to get a stay uh-huh. of execution. Um, but given that the time of death uh, has been challenged and and Swearingen did not succeed, and the fact that the cell tower evidence as well as the painting hose evidence could have been challenged at trial or on the first writ that he filed, he's unlikely to succeed. Okay. It may 
it may unfortunately it may be enough to get him a stay. And they've they've been saying they could do this since the DNA testing results were released back in March. And since the execution date was set back in March. So why they haven't done it yet I I'm kinda curious. I would like them to explain why they haven't uh-huh. done it and hopefully the Court of Criminal Appeals um, hopefully Montgomery County is listening, although I don't think they are, and they will <laughs> have the Court of Criminal Appeals inquire as to why. I mean, I would, you know, use the defense tactics. Pull these articles up from James Riding back in February and March and Bryce Benjet and say, you know, he ha- they haven't done it. They said they could do this back in March. Why didn't they do it? Why did they wait uh, until August 14th? And, yeah. you know, for or against the death penalty, that's not equitable. It's not equitable to wait until the last possible minute when you know what you want to do six months in advance. You know you have these options. So uh, we'll we'll see. Next uh, next week we'll be approaching the seven day deadline. He's less than four. Okay. He's right around fifteen days from execution now. And then finally, we've never talked about this case, but I've been following it for many years. And uh, David Temple, who uh, was accused and convicted of killing his pregnant wife in 1999 in Katy, Texas. He won a retrial uh, out of Harris County. He was recently retried, and he has been convicted uh-huh. again. Uh, we'll probably take a look at the case. <clears throat> we'll take a look at it. Uh, prior to the new round of appeals that he now has. And then once the direct appeal concludes, we'll kind of update it. But that'll be sometime later in the year. Okay. And it's an interesting interesting case. Yes, ma'am. All right, so to the subject, Edward Wayne Edwards. Um, I want to kind of go through a thumbnail of his life. I sent you a timeline, and I may employ Mm -hmm. some of the information as we get to that period of time. But he was born Charles Edward Myers on uh, June 14th. 1933, I have a typo on my timeline. Um, He also at some time used the birth date of May 30th, 1928. It's It's on the police records, NCIC records, but when he used it and why he used it uh, is not evident. 
but most of the records have his date of birth at 614-1933. Um, he was born when he was two, the Cleveland Torso Murders, which were investigated partially by Elliot Ness, he of Al Capone FBI fame, uh, were going on between 1935 and 1938. This is another one of those weird things that John Cameron did. He cites to the torso murders during, 19, during his timeline of the 1940s. Right. But those murders, actually, the 12 known victims were killed between 1935 and 1938, and I don't see uh, Charles Edward Myers at two, three, four, or five having any idea about uh-huh. the Cleveland Torso murders. Um, and from the impression I get, I don't think later in his teenage years that he had any interest in the Cleveland Torso murders. Right. He didn't seem to be one who applied himself to study uh, mm-hmm. at that during that time period. Um, his mother was named Lillian. She apparently pulled off some kind of robbery with her brother. They were caught and arrested, and she was sent to prison. She served Uh a short period of time. It's unclear how long she was in prison. She was released sometime in about 1938 and apparently committed suicide. Um, Shot herself in the stomach. The question I have... With like a shotgun. If you've been on the uh, if you've been on the uh, timeline, but this uh, says his mother Lillian dies of, and I'm about to butcher this septicemia. Septicemia, right? Basically, what that is that's an infection. What happened uh, was she shot herself. It didn't. It was not immediately fatal. She was sent to a hospital. She developed an infection either because she had shrapnel from the bullet left inside her right. I think or conditions in 1938. Um, you know, we barely understood infectious disease during those years. We were starting mm-hmm. to understand a little bit better. Um, but, uh, yeah, she died... She was shot, and she died in August right. of okay. 1938. Now, and allegedly, according to John Cameron, this is a date mm-hmm. that becomes so important to Edward Edwards. August 8th? August 8th. Okay. August 6th, I believe. Okay. Uh, we may be, we may be on the anniversary... The 81st anniversary of her death. Because oh, yeah. I believe it was August I was about 6th. To say, let me look here. Uh, I'm trying to get this. This uh, death certificate he has on here is kind of small, so bear with me. Yeah. I can't really. Yeah. I'm trying my best. I think he has it in the text. 
I believe he has uh, in the text the exact date. August 8th, okay. But that may have been the day he was adopted. Uh, date of birth, April 1st. Okay, I can't find it. We'll go with August. Yeah, August 8th. I see it now. Date okay, August, August 8th. 8th. Okay. So that was allegedly a very important date. Uh, according to his interview with you on mm-hmm. your pri- um, on the prior prior behind the curtain, um, right? And an- you know another interesting thing um, that I note about Cameron is he speaks in absolutes. Mm-hmm. He always did this. He always did that. Well, he should. He's as a police detective. He should know better than speaking in absolutes. Right. Um, So after his mother's death, he was adopted by an aunt and uncle, uh, Mary and Fred Edwards. And his name was changed from Charles Edward Myers to Edward Wayne Edwards. Mm -hmm. His adoptive mother, though, had apparently been diagnosed with multiple sclerosis prior to, I think prior to the adoption and her, um, the disease became symptomatic very soon after he was adopted. Mm -hmm. And so by 1940, uh, Mary and Fred Edwards were unable to care for him. And he was sent to the Parmadale Catholic Orphanage in Parma, Ohio. So first question I have here is the uh, Parmadale, he listed as uh, for out-of-control behavior. Now, this is the first time I see it. See, that's another thing, too. No. And in 1940, in the 1930s and 1940s, a lot of people you you find it especially in the southern um the southern states that experienced a lot of job uh job loss during the great depression in you know mm-hmm. t- Tennessee, Kentucky um a lot of a lot of parents when they could not care for their children a lot of religious organizations, not just Catholic, a lot of religious organizations had orphanages, and they weren't for only for children who had no parents due to death or incarceration. Mm-hmm. They took in kids whose parents were ill. They took in kids who had single mothers. They and and sometimes the mothers weren't incarcerated or ill or anything of that nature. They just could not afford to care for the kids. And there was right. a scandal in, in, I think, Tennessee in the 40s with Georgia Tan. Parents were, were bringing their kids to orphanages, and, and then Georgia Tan ran the orphanage, and she was adopting kids who she was supposed yeah. to be just caring for until their parents could get back on their feet. So this is very common, and my dad was from his mother was his mother was a single mother, 
Mm-hmm. And she and my grandfather divorced when my dad was about two. And that was something she considered because she was a teacher and she was traveling and being an, a divorced woman was bad enough, but having a child was taboo. And so my, my father ended up living with his great grandparents and calling his mother sis. One thing I forgot to ask you about when we first started this, I so apologize. I didn't hear you address it. Was he born in uh was he born in twenty eight or was he born in uh thirty three? Well, I think his birth date was nineteen thirty three, June fourteen, nineteen thirty three. I think at some times he adopted the five thirty twenty eight date. If if he was in if he was in a situation where he needed to be older than he was, okay, or wanted to seem older than he was, he would use that date. However, Mm -hmm. I don't find it a lot, or I did not find it a lot throughout the records. And in fact, as as I as I recall from his book, he doesn't even mention ever using that date. Okay. Okay. He, you know, he may have used that. Time. He may have used that date when he joined the Marines in 1950. True. True. I didn't even think about that. Um, but uh, and and his his juvenile record was based on the 1933 date. Okay. Because he wouldn't have been in a reformatory. In 1948, for boys, if he was using the 1928 date, because he'd be 20. Right. Okay, that makes sense. So, and like, you know, Cameron initially uses that 28, tries to kind of slip that 28 date in there. Uh, But Mm -hmm. I think that was, like I said, it was, he was a con man, and that was a date that, when he needed to be older, he was older. Mm-hmm. Okay. You know? That makes sense. But throughout most of the records, and he never mentions that date that mm-hmm. I recall in Metamorphosis of Criminal. Okay. So um, everything has June 14th, 1933. Okay. So. Okay. Um, so he went to the orphanage again. He was in the orphanage because aunt and uncle adoptive parents could not care for him. And just read this little excerpt. This orphanage does not sound like a fun place. Le- read this well, little excerpt about uh, bedwetting and things like that. But I mean, you well, yeah, and he, different. you know, that that's another thing with metamorphosis of the criminal. You got to take some of that stuff with a grain of salt. It's kind of like Charlie. Manson, Mm -hmm. this could be the myth that Edwards created Mm -hmm. um, to justify his criminal behavior, Mm -hmm. but it may not be 100% true. Um, Now, granted, Catholic nuns in the 1930s 
and 40s and 50s and 60s. And now when I was in school in the 70s and 80s, Catholic nuns could be some tough bitches. Right. All right. I was Protestant, so I never went to a Catholic school. But I had friends in the 70s and 80s who were still getting wrapped with rulers mm-hmm. when they did something wrong. Right. And they had to put their hands out and hold their hands still while they got wrapped on the hand with a ruler. And that shit hurts. <laughs> but, um, and, you know, he was allegedly abused. He was allegedly ridiculed and, uh, you know, like, like I said, but, but again, the 1930s, when you were not in conformity with everyone else and you weren't normal and you didn't live up to the rules or whatever you want to call it, they were hard on you to try and turn you around and change you. Right. And right. so, you know, I'm sure every kid in that orphanage had some stories. Uh, but his criminal behavior started at that time. He started stealing okay. things. He started breaking the rules. He started, you know, being a general, um, a, a rebel in the school. Mm-hmm. Um, perhaps had he had a nuclear family, he might have turned out the same way. Because, mm-hmm. you know, there's there's always been a debate, is it nature or nurture? Mhm. Um so that's that's where uh you know like I said it, it, his whatever treatment he received he lashed out with criminal behavior stealing things like stealing the birthday cake. But mm-hmm. he stole birthday cake because he asked the kid for a piece of the birthday cake and the little selfish bastard said no. <laughs> right. So he's like, okay, fine. I'll take the whole damn cake. And I'll go ruin it for everybody. Um, so that was, uh, and you know, and he was constantly in trouble. He ended up running away from Palmerdale in 1945, and he went to live with his grandmother. Now, this is where we start... 1945, Mm -hmm. Um, at that time, he was involved in petty crimes and cons, and he was starting to dip his toe in the pool of theft, larceny, and burglary. Okay. Now, in 1945, uh, on this, the first uh, excerpt from 45 shows us that the uh, the, uh, serial killer who cut people up is uh, what's going on. Now, you said that that was in the 30s, or am I thinking of a different one? No, Cleveland Torso was 1935 to 1938. Okay. Um, There had been some some suspected murders in the early 40s, but they're not Mm -hmm. confirmed as being from the torso uh killer or the mad uh mad mad butcher of Kingsbury run. That's another case that I've I've researched. Um now uh 
interesting biography about Elliot Ness. Have you been able to read this uh, psychology profile of the uh, of the quote unquote suspect by Miss Weitzman? I'm going to say or Witzman, W-I-T-Z-E-M-A-N. Where is that? That's on the uh, that's on Cold Case Cameron. It's an excerpt under Edward Wayne Edwards commits his first known murders, age 13, and then it says or 18. It says the personality picture in one of a highly disturbed individual who needs psychiatric help, and then it goes into a little bit, uh, a little bit more. Uh, it also says Wayne is a neurotic and possibly psychotic. His behavior. Yeah, but that's see that, that's that's one of the that's one of the confirmation by examples of the confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. That is an excerpt from a 1950. Um. Psych evaluation right. done on Edwards in one it of the reformatories. It doesn't. It doesn't have anything to do with the Cleveland torso murderer. Okay. And see, this is another problem. He or 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 any or you know, it doesn't. It doesn't really have anything to do with Edwards mm-hmm. as a murderer. Um. Mm-hmm. He. Well, this this is in 1950 for. 16 years, this boy has been exhibiting oppositional, defiant behavior, criminal behavior, lying. He's been in an orphanage. He's run away. He's committed crimes. He's been in a reformatory. He's had a psych psych evaluation in 1946, which we'll get to a little bit later. And... Mm -hmm. This is this is the, you know, in 1950, yeah, he he needs psychiatric help. He's neurotic and possibly mm-hmm. psychotic, but that doesn't mean that he started killing people in 1945. Mm-hmm. He's taking he's taking bits and pieces in a vacuum and seeing what he wants to see. Mm-hmm. Rather than objectively looking at, for example, he doesn't he doesn't have any correct facts about just a, about any of these cases. Right. Everything he puts about these cases, every fact he cites about these cases, are his perception of what he believed Edwards did. Because somehow, without knowing the man outside of prison prior to 2009, without ever speaking to the man, and I don't think they ever spoke because in Edward's letters to him, he complains about trying to call and trying to call and never getting through. Uh They wrote letters back and forth. He never interviewed Edwards in person. How would he even know what this man's state of mind and thought processes were? But he claims to know. Uh And just like the May 30th, 1928 date, he has as a fact that Edwards was born in Akron, Ohio on May 30th, 1928. Uh Uh-huh. Oh, shh. Son of a gun. 
Uh, I have got to. Can you play some music? I got to go run and get my. Um, I got to go run and get my my charger. Absolutely, we'll be right back with or, more clearing. Or talk we amongst yourselves. <laughs> we'll play some music. We'll be back after this, ladies and gentlemen. Discombobulated. <laughs> hey, I gave you a challenge. Holy crap, you sure did. All right, <laughs> so um, as I was saying, you know, like on Cold Case Cameron, okay, this is an example. Instead mm-hmm. of making, putting that up there as a fact, he could have done an asterisk mm-hmm. that said, he also used May 30th, 1928, but it's unclear. It's on his NCIC records, but it's unclear when or what period of time he used that date. Mm-hmm. Um, like I said, all of the official stuff is the 1933 date. Right. And so that would be the, you know, like I said, that would be the, uh, the, that would be the date that you would use. Right. And then say he used this date, don't know why, and, and he should have been a detective and tried to figure out when did he use the 1928 date. Right. Hell, did he use it with one of his aliases uh-huh. to perhaps get benefits of some sort? True, true. Who knows? Um, but that's you know that's one of the uh, what's one of the examples of the confirmation bias. Uh-huh. Um, Absolutely. And and perhaps an in- inability of Cameron. 
to kind of think things through and decide, you know, what what really matters and what doesn't. Uh, and, right. and to research. You know, just because it shows up on NCIC doesn't even prove when or where it was used. Right. True. So, um, you know, like I said, he, he says 1945, uh, he, says he, he says he was thrown out of Palmerdale. He actually ran away. Uh-huh. Right, I do see He had that. tried to run That's away a couple right. of times, but he wasn't real good at running away because he would um, get caught and brought back. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but um, uh, he, he refers to the, the Cleveland Torso case. And the Sandusky Register that he uses is a 1938. Mhm. So, and then you know, Edwards commits his first known murders, age 13 or 18. And I think maybe he right. felt he had to make him 18 for those murders in 1945 and 1946 to work. Right. So, but right. in 1945. He runs away from Palmerdale and he goes to live with his grandmother. He's committing petty crimes, theft, and vandalism. Another mm-hmm. interesting thing, in his book, he doesn't really talk about dates. He doesn't give a lot of dates. So it's kind of hard to tell what period of time things are taking place in. However, he was in you Akron, mean, Ohio. You mean Edwards? The murders. Of Josephine, yeah, Edwards, in his book, mm-hmm. um, and you know John Cameron apparently didn't even try. <laughs> so, but we'll get into that later. Um, the murders of Josephine Ross and Francis Brown, which occurred on June fifth and December eleventh, nineteen forty-five, in Chicago. Uh, Josephine mm-hmm. Ross was killed in her apartment. It's believed that she caught someone. Breaking in, and mm-hmm. she was, I believe, stabbed. Yeah, it says stabbed, throat slit, and placed in a bathtub. Body washed and right. tape placed on wounds uh, of the body. And I believe, yeah, Psyche Valley. If you go further down, because I can tell you're on the uh, on the timeline now. I believe the site, yeah. the three exits from the Psyche valve that he has right underneath the picture of the wall is what he's right. using to uh, – using as his evidence supporting these two murders above. Yeah, but no, but again, that that is not – that is an evaluation done of Edwards in 1950, five right. years after these murders were committed. This right. is not – it's not even relevant to the murders in Chicago. Now, question, just because I do see some uh, some similarities, uh, Francis Brown, who was murdered on December 11th of the same year, minus the shot to the head and the lipstick message, pretty much the same thing. 
Well, she was shot in the head. She, again, it was believed that she uh, discovered an intruder. She was shot in the head. Um, I don't know that the adhesive tape placed on the wounds is correct. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, uh, So I want, I think we need to, uh, uh, I think we need to discount that. Um, Josephine Ross, she had struggled. No valuables were taken from the apartment. Um, She'd been repeatedly stabbed, and her head was wrapped in a dress. Uh, So there was no placing in the bathtub, no adhesive tape on wounds. Where he got that back, I don't know. No. The body wash isn't cooperating either? Okay. No, and the the head being wrapped in a dress is actually a sign of remorse or regret. Right. That the killer can't look at her after what he's done to her. Yeah, that makes sense. Um. Then on December eleventh, nineteen forty-five, uh, Frances Brown was discovered stabbed to death in her apartment. After a woman heard a radio playing loud and noted Brown's door partly open, Brown had been savagely stabbed, and authorities thought a burglar had been discovered or interrupted. No valuables were taken, but there was a lipstick, a message in lipstick written on the wall, for heaven's sake, catch me before I kill more. I cannot control myself. Police found a bloody fingerprint smudge. Yeah. But that, you know, that's another thing, too. Um, Cameron has held himself out as some kind of handwriting analyst. So he's saying from the picture, oh, well, that's Ed Edwards' handwriting. Right. Okay. Well, you know, again. I want to ask you real quick, real quick before we move on from Francis. You didn't mention something that he mentioned, uh, shot to the head. You just mentioned yeah. stab wounds. Was there a shot to the head of Francis? Uh, an ear witness heard gunshots at 4 a.m. The summary that I have does not say anything about her having been shot, though. Okay. I was just wondering. And so, again, the theory is that these two women startled an intruder and were killed. Uh, And then on January 6th or 7th, Mm -hmm. 1946, uh, Suzanne Dagnan was discovered missing from her bedroom. After searching the Mm -hmm. home and not finding the girl, her family called police. Now, um, in, in this... Again, going beyond the facts, he says he lured Suzanne out of her home on a Sunday night and left a message and a ransom note. There's nothing – I mean, she could have been kidnapped by someone who came into the home. To be fair – Police found a ladder outside the girl's window and discovered a ransom note which had been overlooked by the family. To be fair, you can't even, this ransom note, the picture that he's posted, 
I can make out FBI you can't read it. and do not something. You can't really read yeah, it. Yeah. You can't you, even tell what it's You says. can't read it. He has a lot of thumbnails that when you cl- even when you click on them, they're so small, and when you try to make them larger, they pixelate. And so you can't so read it. So he's them. saying that. He's saying that January 6th to 7th was also Suzanne, and he lured her out of the home and left a ransom note, correct? Right, correct. But, again, the, the ladder was found, a ladder was found outside the house. More likely uh-huh. than not, the killer came into the house and took mm-hmm. Suzanne away. Right. And okay. left the ransom note. Okay. Um, and I'm assuming he's looking at this Stop Me Before I Kill More as the link between that one and the previous one. But just looking at the way everything's written, if you're a handwriting expert, the B looks more like two boxes on top of each other. The B written on the wall here looks like a B. Well, I know from experience and all the research that I've done, we cannot compare handwriting from pictures, black and white, Uh small, low-resolution pictures. Okay. Well, I just automatically uh, looked at that because that's the only one that I see that matches is the uh, stop me. The the preferred method for a handwriting analyst is to have Mm -hmm. a document of questioned writing and samples Mm -hmm. of known writing and to compare the documents. They prefer originals Mm -hmm. where they're available, but they can use copies. They very rarely will even try to do, like if you have writing on a wall and a picture, they very, very rarely will even try to do that. Okay. Because the picture of the writing on the wall, you can't look at it under a microscope because they use a microscope to see how you move the letters and where you where you put the pen on the paper. And there's a lot more than just... This A looks like that A. Mm-hmm. Where does the pen go down to start that A? And where does the right. pen go down to start the other A? So, so again, um, but uh, Suzanne's body was apparently dismembered. Mm-hmm. There was an anonymous call to police suggesting that police look mm-hmm. in the sewers near the Degnan's home, and they discovered Uh Suzanne's head in a catch basin in an alley. Now, question. In the same alley, they discovered the girl's leg. Her torso Uh was in a storm drain, and her left leg was found in another alley. Her arms were found in the sewer a month later. Now, the question I have, based upon what you're telling me, that they found her uh-huh. is how does he make a uh, connection to John Bonet? Because that's not a similar mo in my opinion. Not at all. Because they never found anything at John Bonet. 
No, they right? found all of John Bonet. She was oh, strangled to death, or bludgeoned and strangled in her house, and found in the basement okay, of her mistake. house. My mistake. I yeah. apologize. I didn't think they found John Bonet. No, John Bonet was in her house. Not even it's, it's still not. No, John John Bonet Ramsey was not dismembered. Yeah, it, it's not. John Bonet Ramsey wasn't taken out of the house. The only thing that's similar is a ram, ransom note. That's the only thing that's similar. Correct. Oh, and, and you, you know, with a child and a a child and a kidnapping, or what's meant to look like a kidnapping, that's not a unique. Aspect. Yeah. In a no, lot of it, children's disappearances, a, a some form of ran, ransom note is provided. Yeah, it, it's absolutely not. Now, I do have to ask you, did you see anything in the book when you were reading it about the three, the quote-unquote three hours he had her in the basement? Um. I didn't, but again, that is entirely, that's Cameron's speculation. Okay. Cameron is not working from, Cameron is not working from a confession given to him by Edward Edwards Mm -hmm. to each and every one of these murders with a description of how he did it. Right. Cameron is using the internet And finding some facts and not even double-checking and cross-checking or corroborating Mm -hmm. them and then putting them as fact on his website and his book. Mm -hmm. Because he really doesn't have the facts of of Suzanne Degnan's. He doesn't have the facts right. She wasn't lured out by somebody. And there's no evidence of anybody new in the family's life that could have lured her out. This is the third one in a row. We're, we're three murders in and three murders where he's gotten details wrong. You mentioned that you don't see anything Correct. about the adhesive tape on either of them. You don't mention no. the shot to the head on Francis Brown. I mean, uh, this is certainly interesting. We do have a call, Lisa, to come on here uh, Brad is actually on. He, I guess he wants to come on and discuss a little bit of this with you as well, if that's okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, we'll go ahead and bring I'm sorry, Brad. Brad. Well, uh, uh, well, dang. Um, no, I, I, I was Trust just listening. Me, and, uh, you know, it was interesting. I mean, it was interesting when I interviewed him a couple of years back. I mean, to hear what he had to say. Of course, on that show, I never really went after uh, you know, attacking the credibility of anyone. I would just put the information out there and let the audience and the listeners decipher for themselves the truth. So, um, you know, I, I, I found it far-fetched in a lot of the cases as well, Lisa. I mean, let's be honest, you know, not making light of murder or anything like that, but if Edward Edwards had done what John Cameron had alleged, uh, the dude is the Michael Jordan of serial killers. Right, exactly. I mean, uh, and, 
I, I mean, at this time, he know, would have been twelve. He would have been twelve years old. Yeah. Yeah. With his, right? You know. I mean, and, it is interesting, uh, and and I can't wait till you guys get on this. And I, I'm sure that's later on in the in the. I know because this is part one, and I, I will be listening. You know, I'm currently at work, but I'm really interested in that whole uh, cameo appearance in the documentary, and I won't go any further into that, so I'll save that show for, for another date. But, yeah. Uh, Lisa, you know the one I'm talking about. Um, that's that's going to be episode three. Oh, oh, dear Lord, do not miss that one, because when we get to the West Memphis 3 case, I am probably not going to be very nice about Mr. Cameron. <laughs> I'm trying to be diplomatic. But when I get to the West Memphis Three case, that is one of the examples of where I don't even know where he got the facts. I mean, we're just for three case. for three, and he's completely just bullshitting, bullshitting facts, in my opinion. Like, I, I mean, I know it's I got to be nicer, but that's the only way I can state it is he's adding shit and all sorts of stuff. He actually, from what I noticed in his book, he actually is pretty simplistic about the facts. Right. I mean, um, and I think know, he 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 puts it in terms that make it seem like the murders are connected. Now, spoiler alert: these three murders are connected, but just not to Edward Wayne Edwards. But okay. I want to go into right. the, I want to go into the perpetrators who were caught, because of course the other allegation that Cameron makes is that he committed these murders, and then he liked to always frame somebody. Yeah, I was so going to ask you, uh, according to the book and, and according to the interview that I did with Mr. Cameron, uh, that was his saying was that John Ed, or John Ed, that Ed Edwards was a. Um, that was his M.O., you know. He he elicited the perfect murder um, and then was able to manipulate everything to minute detail so that it pinned it on someone else. And, and so I was going to ask you that, and then I was also going to ask your opinion. You know, now the only thing that that I recall was that you could place Ed Edwards in – or around the vicinity within a couple hundred miles, I believe, is what I was, if I recall the, the interview correctly, uh, of the location at the time. But, you know, obviously, well, look, I mean, if you're 12 years old and you're able to pin a murder on somebody else, then, then uh, you know, you're wasting some, you know, valuable, precious assets. Right. Because if you're that but, talented, yeah. you know. <laughs> the, but that... And that's not, you know, like Hirons was not caught because somebody called in a tip or an anonymous letter pointed police to his, to him or anything of that nature. I'll get into that later. Um, but, again, he's 12 years old. He's in Ohio. He's in Akron. How does he get to Chicago? He wasn't from a wealthy right. family. Right. Any money that he stole, he gave to his grandmother to support the family. So how does he get to Chicago one, two, three times? 
Right, exactly. I mean, we're not questioning the fact that Ed Edwards was a was a um, was a was a very so fast. Cameron's defender. claim. Yeah. See, that's the thing. Cameron's claim that Edwards could be placed in all these locations is yet another example of his bunk. Well, and I mean, at least um, even Cameron Cameron didn't. He never he never lived in Chicago, Illinois, and he actually doesn't say anything about traveling to Chicago, Illinois during this time period. He may have gone to Chicago later in life, but they they, they, um, they never got any more out of him, right? No, he admitted to the three murders, and and in all the letters that he wrote with with Cameron in 2010, 2011, uh, during that period before he died, he told him repeatedly, I haven't committed any murders other than the three that I have pled guilty to. Well, and Brad, if you remember, he would never cop to anything. Edwards would ask him about, for example, and I'm just pulling this one out, John Bonet, for example, and, he'd be, and he said Edwards would respond with, well, what does the evidence tell you? Or something kind of coded, you None know, of, kind of maybe this kind is, of jack around with. This is another... This is another problem that I have with Cameron. We have his hearsay does is not corroborated by the letters that he's posted on right. his website that were written to him by Edward Edwards. In the Edward Edwards letters, all he ever does is say, I didn't commit any other murders. I didn't commit murders in Montana or... Um, Colorado, and I can't remember the third state. He said, I, I, mm. I didn't do those. I, I did the three that I admitted to. That's all I've ever done. Murder was not my thing until later in life. He was right. a con man. And, you know, and Cameron was putting money on his books, and Cameron was laying it on thick, pretending, I know your Zodiac, and I know you did this, and I know you did that, and but Edwards didn't bite in any of his letters. So his his hearsay in the interview about his exchanges with Edwards are kind of suspect now because I've read the letters. Right. And nowhere right. does Edwards say, you got what you got, do what you need to do, you know. I think the last right. letter where he says you can write your book, you know, just try to be nice about me. And, and I mean, that could maybe just be something like, hey, make up all the shit you want, you know, just, you know, do right. whatever. Well, the very first letter that Edwards writes to John Cameron says, I don't know whether you're a liar or just a bullshitter. Mm-hmm. So uh, I didn't want to go into that now, right? <laughs> but that to me speaks volumes, and it doesn't it doesn't bode well for John Cameron, right? Right. But I mean, by this point, Cameron's made what he's going to make, I'm sure, off of it, and and the two of them have, you know, I mean, Edward is done. Uh, 
So I mean, you know, and if he's put, I, see, and I I was unaware that he was putting money on the book. So I'm sure. Yeah. yeah I mean, Edwards being a con man was like, yeah, I'll tell you whatever you want to hear. Just keep dropping me twenties on on my books every week, you know. Oh no, he was doing yeah, like hundred fifty. Well, I mean, I've never been to prison yet. Um, close, but uh. yeah. Of course, initially he tried to con him. He told him he put money on the books when he hadn't. Oh, hmm. Cameron did. So, you know, I uh, I think it was two con men playing Candace Mas Macho. Um. Uh. But uh yeah, I mean, no, the the this whole thing I mean the the excerpt from uh, from the book on, on Suzanne Dagnan. By the time I was thirteen I got a crush on a woman who lived about two houses up the street from me. She was very attractive, brunette divorcee, about twenty six years old. How is that Suzanne Dagnan? Right. Suzanne's what? Like six, yeah. Suzanne's six. six. I, yeah. He and you know he he he's talking about he waited he was gonna do something to the woman's boyfriend or his vehicle, so he gets his grandmother hanging wallpaper, sneaked out, filled a coke bottle with turpentine, set the bottle on the back steps, and went to talk to his grandmother, building his alibi. And when he went to make a sandwich, he snuck out. He started a fire, and he came back, and I mean, that is like every criminal, every criminal does that. They figure out little ways. That doesn't have anything to do with Suzanne Dagnan. Just because he he says he was building an alibi, he was building an alibi because he was getting ready to set a freaking truck on fire. He was planning to set a truck on fire. So, of course, he's going to build an alibi so that he doesn't get the finger pointed at him for setting the truck on fire. But that entire thing has zero to do with Suzanne Degnan's murder. Well, and I mean, I even read that excerpt to you earlier on the next case. We're going to cover uh, Dahlia, Black Dahlia, and... It makes no sense how he's connecting the two. I mean, Cameron's kind of right. over what three at this point. The other thing, the other thing you have to remember with his website is he takes a lot of these things from Edward's book out of context. Now, another interesting thing that I found in the Bureau of Juvenile Research, which I think was like when you. When you were an uncontrollable juvenile, you went to kind of a group home. Maybe it was sort of a psych home placement. Which is where um, to prior to going to a reformatory, which was which was like juvenile jail or juvenile prison. Right. And he had a psych psych evaluation in 1946. He was mm-hmm. aged 13 years, some months. I can't remember how many months. His mental age was noted at 10 years, 8 months. So he was actually at 13, an immature 13. His height was 
five feet, two and a half inches, and he weighed 126 pounds. So he was not a big strapping Scandinavian boy. He was a little white Anglo-Saxon Protestant boy. So at 13, he's not, he doesn't look like an adult and he doesn't think or act like an adult. Right. I mean, even just the alibi, quote unquote, that you're talking about, he's setting up and stuff is like a 13 year old. Hey, if I tell my grandma this, I can quickly go do this, you know? Right, exactly, exactly. And I mean, it is pretty, you know, pretty interesting. He goes, she's upstairs busy, so he says he's going to go. Well, he goes to the garage and gets a Coke bottle with the turpentine. Then he goes back up. He engages her. He says he's going to go make a sandwich. He goes upstairs, eats it in front of her, talked with her for a little while, and then says he's going to go do the dishes. And that's when he sneaks out of the house and sets a truck on fire. You know, that's, that right. is, that's immature, that's immature thinking, uh, yeah. which leads us to Los Angeles, California, 1947, um, which Elizabeth Short. I remember James telling us how he got to L.A., but I, I, I mean, I'm going to need a refresher. It's been years. How the hell did a 13-year-old get to L.A.? Or maybe he did not. He doesn't. He doesn't tell anybody how he gets to L.A. He has something about a car, a description of a car with an Ohio license, some mm-hmm. from some notes taken from the FBI file. But the um, uh, that goes to the that goes to the picture, which I'll get into in a little bit. But Elizabeth Short was born in Medford, Massachusetts. She had tuberculosis. So from an, a pretty young age, the cold weather in Massachusetts during winter was very difficult for her. And so she started spending summers in Florida and going, spending, you know, well, winters in Florida and summers in Massachusetts. And then eventually uh-huh. her father who had abandoned the family when she was six, contacted the family, and he was living in California. So she moved out to California in the Santa Barbara area and lived with him for a short time. Um, Elizabeth was looking for a husband. She preferred military men. She was uh, dating and engaged to a pilot who was killed. Uh, she was engaged to another pilot at some point. That didn't work out. Um, she lived primarily in Santa Barbara and San Diego, although she had lived in Los Angeles for several months in 1946. 19, like 19, uh, and so um, at the time, she was living in Santa, San Diego. She was working as a waitress. She ran into a man that she'd met a few months before, Red Manley. 
he offered to give her a ride to L.A. because he was going there on a business trip. Or he'd been in San Diego on a business trip and was going home. He On January 8th, they stayed in a hotel, and then they went to Los Angeles. At 6.30 on January 9th, he dropped Elizabeth off at the Biltmore Hotel after she stored her bag at a train station. There, Nobody knows where she was after he dropped her off on the 9th, the 10th, the 11th, the 12th, the 13th, the 14th. On the morning of January 15th, her body was discovered in an alley on Norton Avenue. Uh, it, she was nude. She had been cut in half. She had been displayed. Her face had been mutilated. And she, cause of death was listed as shock from blood loss. She'd apparently been held for some time and tortured. Uh, and probably head injury. Mm-hmm. Um, there were a lot of leads. A lot of the men in her life were tracked down. The photograph that uh, Cameron claims is of uh, John uh, of Edward 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 Edwards, and was an unidentified male. That man was actually identified. Mm-hmm. And it's in the FBI records. His name was John Henry Shippey. He'd met Elizabeth in 45, had a fling with her, and then he'd left California and gone back to New Hampshire. Right. So, the unidentified man that he claims is Edwards was identified, and his name was Shippy, and he was in his 30s. I mean, goodness gracious. I mean, uh, right. that's, like I said, that's that's the confirmation bias. Shippy was a first lieutenant in the U.S. Army Air Corps. He had been discharged um, due to um, Section 8. And he was found and interviewed in New Hampshire... Uh, where he was living with his second wife. This kid looks nothing like 13. Oh, my goodness. No. And that's like the thing, 13. like I said. What you talking about? Yeah. And if you go go download a copy, uh, there's a link to Metamorphosis of the Criminal on um, Cameron's page. Download a copy. Search the word 12. And there's a picture of Cameron at the age of 12. Because Uh that's another mistake that Cameron made. He didn't compare the picture when when Edwards was 12. He compared Uh a picture of Edwards when Edwards was 21. Seven years later. Wow. Uh, Brad, I think you wanted to say something. Sorry, Brad. 
I was just going to let your listeners know that uh, I know you're doing a multi-part series on this, um, but if they wanted some insight as to, you know, if they don't know much about it and they just want some insight so they kind of have an idea of what you're talking about, I'm curious to see, and I don't know, Lisa, if you got a chance to catch it, but I guess the Paramount Network in 2018 did a six-part documentary series called It Was Him, The Many Possible Murders of Ed Edwards. Yes. And I'm actually going to go research that um, later on this evening because I I really want to watch it. I mean, I think it's a farce that the guy did it, but I still, you know, just want to see – what what you know what his basis is, even though a lot of it's BS. And and then I was looking at a list of I couldn't remember, and I won't mention them of course because I'm gonna let you guys do that. But I mean it's 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 laughable. Um, some of the victims, supposed victims that Ed Edwards was able to murder. I mean, correct. Yeah. Lisa. Yeah. Lisa. Several, yeah. There's been several prominent murders that have been featured on several documentaries uh, that have garnered national attention. And, of course, you'll get into that later. But, I mean, yeah. you know, one in particular that I'm thinking of uh, that happened in, in Wisconsin, I'm like, really? Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you know, actually, when you, when you look at it in the, in the 40s and 50s, newspaper reporters actually had a lot more access to police investigations than they do today. Um, in the, I think in the Hirons or in, in the Ross Brown Degnan case, the reporters were out investigating the murders and asking questions. And in the Black Dahlia case, they were really involved. They were the ones who helped the police identify Elizabeth Short because they were able to transmit. <laughs> fingerprint photographs to the FBI and the FBI checked federal employee records because she had worked at one of the, uh, one of the camps in California. In the well, and, and I guess that's a, a sign and of And she had a criminal record. I mean, in the forties and the fifties, you didn't jump on Facebook. Obviously life was better then, but um, in, in a lot of ways, uh, you know, the access to cell phones and the fact that, Anyone is a mobile Fox News or CNN at this point if you carry a smartphone. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, it makes sense that the reporters would have that. I mean, it, and it's re- interesting that you brought that up because, uh, you know, I had been actually read something on the involvement of the press in solving a lot of murders in, in that in time frame back then. So, you know, um, yeah. obviously. Well, but they also – they also, in the Black Dahlia case, they actually, to a degree, hindered the investigation because they were getting um, they were getting hearsay information and and printing everything they got, and the police detectives could not have a private conversation about a lead because the reporters were in the investigative bureau, and as soon as they talked about a lead. The reporters would be out beating them to the to the lead, and then tainting witnesses, because that's what happens sometimes when the press gets to a witness before the police do. 
Okay, Lisa, a couple things that are just jumping off of this at me that I really just can't stand right now. Uh, okay. Looking at, uh, looking further down in the page in the 50s, in the 30s to 50 uh, range for the timeline, 1947, uh-huh. as arrested, his 1972 book describes himself after killing Black Dahlia. The first sentence right. literally says, one spring morning in 1946. That's a year before Dahlia yeah. was murdered. What the Correct. hell? Are we literally Correct. ignoring facts? Yeah, he basically is. Like, I can understand your anger now. Like, what the hell? Yeah. You know, he he's basically, he's taking things out of context. Like this thing about slapping somebody around, kicking her, knocking her down. Um, fattening her with that's about a woman that was cheating on him. I mean, and then this Joe, uh, Joe, whatever it is, Joe, uh, that, 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 uh, Joe One Orbit. This post literally yeah. means nothing to me. Like, is he trying to say that Edwards tried to babysit her kids and then murdered her because she wouldn't? Let him, like, what the hell? I'm literally so confused right now. More confused by reading this than than I would be if I just read his timeline. Maybe that's what what he wants is he's betting people aren't going to click on these links, but this Joe Orbit, Joe on Orbit, literally makes no sense either. Right. Exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right. A lot of it doesn't make sense. In his mind, it works. It makes sense. It's a fact. But when you look at it objectively, which is what detectives are supposedly supposed to be doing, you know, um, it just, it's crazy. And this this note, um, June 47, FBI reports attempting to ID Edwards. Of course, it's a broken link. Um, they're not reporting that they're attempting to ID Edwards. They're attempting to ID the guy in the photo booth photo. And guess what? They did. And he was an older man in his 20s or 30s named Shippy who was a former pilot who dated Elizabeth Short in Los Angeles for a brief period of time. And and it's interesting, he says he always framed people, but he didn't frame anybody for Elizabeth Short. This whole like message thread between Joe One Orbit and this group or whatever, it, it literally uh-huh. none of it makes sense to me how it quote unquote fits into the crime. Like, mm-hmm. ladies and gentlemen, if you're listening to this and you go to Cold Case Cameron, I suggest you are supposed to take it as what it is and not click any of these links he has provided as evidence because Literally, you're going to be pulling out your hair trying to figure out what he means by trying to connect this shit. Yeah. 
Well, I think for anything, you know, get the victim's name, Google it, and look for um, sources that aren't cold case Cameron. Right. I mean, even Wikipedia, you know, it, it is a pretty good resource for a case like Black Dahlia. Right. And it has a lot of information in one place. And actually, based on the research that I did back in 82 or 81, when I first got interested in the case, um, mm-hmm. you know, it, it is pretty accurate as to what we know. We don't know a lot. And again, with Elizabeth Short, we don't, you know, know a lot about her day-to-day life or what she did because she kind of kept a lot of that stuff to herself. Well, and I apologize for spending so much time on Elizabeth, but literally like Lisa, I just, I can understand why. And I remember reading an excerpt or a a review of the show that Brad brought up. And it said at one point that Edward's relative that was investigating this stuff with Cameron on this show was literally just got confused how he was tying this shit to Edwards, and I understand it. Like, Correct. Huh? Yeah. Well, and that's another thing where coincidences are are sometimes just coincidences, and he has a lot of making coincidences. Like, apparently near Norton, where the body was found, is a street called Degnan Boulevard. Well, apparently he decides that Su- uh, that Elizabeth Short was obsessed with the Suzanne Degnan case. But nah. I, do- I have never, ever found anything. She traveled to Illinois and lived in Illinois very briefly in Chicago. But because of her lung condition, the weather was too brutal. And I don't know well, that she I even remember, really lived in Illinois for any length of time. And I remember when we were talking with him, and this is once again jumping ahead, so I'm just going to make a brief statement about it. But his connection to West Memphis 3 was he committed murders early in his life in Robin Hill's hood or something. And the boys yeah. were obviously Robin Hill, uh, Robin Hood Hills. I, I, I'm so discombobulated, I can't even say it anymore. <laughs> yeah, like, it's Lisa, pretty much. I think I'm the one who went down the rabbit hole, not you. You did. You did, and I keep trying to claw my way out, and you just pulled me back in. So, and, you <laughs> well, know, th- this is another thing. Um, there's a site called Black Dahlia Solution. I don't remember whether it's .com or .org. Okay. He claims, Cameron claims that Edwards made this site mm-hmm. and that Edwards is confessing to Black Dahlia. Now, yeah. in reality, um, the, the site has been changed and Web Archive does not have any of the prior versions. So the, the part that he quotes from as far as the guy being interested in mystery shows, that doesn't come up anymore. But 
what comes up now about the author, the author of this site and person responsible for solving the Black Dahlia murder riddle, John F. Coney Jr., spent 30 years working for the U.S. government as a mathematician where he garnered, garnered considerable experience and expertise in decryption. Although justice can never be served on the man who committed this heinous crime, it was the author's hope that the information revealed in this site will allow the Black Dahlia to finally rest in peace. On July 7th, 2016, Mr. Coney passed away. He was born in Hollywood. He lived his entire life in San Diego with the Black Dahlia in the news for much of his life. He became interested in the mystery and dedicated countless hours to decrypting clues in the hopes of bringing some peace to the family of Elizabeth Short. Now, this was not John Edwards. I mean, Edward Edwards. Right. Brad, you got me saying John Edwards. Um, <laughs> this was someone named Coney who was actually born in Los Angeles, so was there. But his theory was that Dahlia was killed by a man she told her friends was named Maurice Clement, who was Uh named Ed Burns, and that after killing Dahlia in January, he killed himself in March. So, I mean, do you believe that is plausible, just so we can go ahead and throw that out there? Like, have you been I, I don't. Look over I that? can't find any. I can't find any confirmation of her having a boy re- boyfriend that she said was named Maurice Clement. I can't find okay. any confirmation of a man drowning himself in the ocean in 1947 to corroborate his claim. Um, I, the the. Between Cameron's book, the Dahlia Solution website, and Edwards' book, I have been subjected to examples of some of the worst writing in the history of writing. I mean, I I don't blame you. It would look like I stabbed someone to death if I took these books or this website and edited them. My goodness, the pages I mean, would run red with ink because they are so goodness. poorly written. My goodness, honestly, like, my head hurts from all of this, but, I mean, I'm going to power through it. But All right, let me, let me read you. But before we uh, – I, I, need, I need to take a little break. We're probably going to run a little long okay. tonight. We'll get as far as we can, and then we'll just pick up next week. Um, but I'm going to read okay. you the name of all of the suspects on the list for the Black Dahlia, okay? Okay. Um, and some names I recognize from my research, and some names have come out in the the past decade. Mark Hansen, okay. Carl Batsinger, C. Welsh, Sergeant Chuck, John D. Wade, Joe Scalis, James Nimmo, uh, Maurice Clement, a Chicago police officer, Salvador Torres Vera, Dr. George Hodel, Marvin Margulis, Glenn Wolfe, Michael Anthony Otero, George Bacos, Francis Campbell, queer woman surgeon, Dr. Paul DeGaston, Dr. A.E. Bricks, Dr. M.M. M. Schwartz, 
Dr. Arthur McGinnis fought Dr. Patrick S. O'Reilly. Um, now, current suspects, Walter Bailey, Norman Chandler, Leslie Dillon, Ed Burns, which I, I, I don't know that Ed Burns or Maurice Clement actually exists. Joseph Dumai, Dumais, D-U-M-A-I-S, I say Dumais. Mark Hansen, George Hodel, George Knowlton, Robert M. Manley, Red, Patrick S. O'Reilly, and Jack Anderson Wilson. Um, those are some of the suspects. I don't see Edward Edwards. And Edward as Edwards was 13. He was an immature 13. His mental age was 10. He, uh, again, look at his picture in, um, look at his picture in, his book, at the age of 12, T-W-E-L-V-E, he was a blonde child, and he did not look like an adult. And I don't find it at all realistic, A, of a 13-and-a-half-year-old immature kid getting from Akron, Ohio to Los Angeles, California. Yeah, no, not a chance. Especially In order for him to have met... In order for him to have met Black Dahlia, Elizabeth Short, he would have had to be in Los Angeles, Santa Barbara, Long Beach, or San Diego for some length mm-hmm. of time. I don't see that happening. No. Um, the other thing about him talking about grooming people and grooming women and grooming victims and grooming suspects, I don't see anything anything supporting any of that in legitimate research on the cases. Mm -hmm. Because, again, you don't see anything about a kid, a young man. I mean, even if he was 18, he would look younger than she was. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, I I once dated an 18-year-old when I was in my 30s. People thought Uh, he was my son. I know, really. I tried. But but he was an immature 18. Let's be honest. Elizabeth Short was pretty famous at this moment. I'm pretty sure she's not going to be hitting some random maybe 18-year-old up to hang out. Like, no. No. And like I I said, her, her, her type were military men. You know, Shippy, I think is the if I remember correctly, he met her because he was walking past her on the street. She saw the uh, overseas decorations on his uniform, and she stopped to talk to him about it. Mm-hmm. You know, she she wanted a military man or a former military man. Probably because with her father abandoning them, she thought a military man, you know, their their honor code would never allow them to abandon. Yeah. Whew. My goodness. So, um, let's take a. I I put up two pause two. Break songs, and since my okay. phone is probably about to die, I'm going to run out, grab a drink, 
grab a few puffs of a cigarette. I can't take my phone with me. Mm-hmm. So I will message you on Facebook as soon as I run back. Okay. Sounds good. All right. All right. We'll be right back with more clear and convincing after this, ladies and gentlemen.
All right, we're back. We're back. Okay. So, um, after 1947, uh, now it looks like also the other reason it's uh, it's unlikely that Edwards was actually in Los Angeles is because in 1946, he went to the Bureau of Juvenile Research, and he was actually living there. He also went back to live with his grandmother. Right. For a period of time. He was arrested in 1947, sometime after January, and then he went to the St. Gerard's Catholic Reformatory. In between, there may have also been a placement working on a farm of some kind during that period in the winter of 1946 and early 1947. So he may not have been – he may have been in Pennsylvania, not Los Angeles. And once he more or less ages out of – he definitely went to – Pennsylvania in 1948. He aged out in 1950. And he did have another psych, a second psych evaluation performed. He joined the uh-huh. U.S. Marine Corps. He was 16, probably about to turn 17. He went to Paris Island, Speaking finished which, boot camp. Speaking of which, well, I you know, another that. thing. Okay. Yeah. Do they not do a psych eval? Because, I mean, come on now. His mental health, obviously, mm-hmm. he shouldn't have been in the military. Not, well, not in those days. And actually, in the 50s, 60s, 70s, when a kid was getting in trouble and committing crimes and in reformatories, going uh-huh. into the military was one of the options that he could choose. To make some of his juvenile trouble go away. And so while Cameron paints this as some, you know, espionage way, I mean, maybe he used the 1928 date to join the Marine Corps. But they found out because he was told after he finished boot camp and went to Camp Lejeune, he was told they couldn't send him overseas because he was underage. What? So, and this also demonstrates his level of immaturity that I think makes it unlikely that he could have impressed a 22-year-old woman like Elizabeth Short. He doesn't just wait 10 months, 9 months until he turns 18 and then they can send him overseas to Korea. He deserts. Right. And that shows a level of immaturity. And then, according to Cameron, and I don't know if you have any uh, thing cooperating this, but I'm just going to p- point this out. It says that he starts telling people he was part of the CIA or something. And I see a little excerpt from his book. Well... Yeah, but again, he takes the things out of context, so I don't know um, 
the the thing he's citing from, I don't know whether that's in that 1951 time frame or whether it's later. He did have a job at one point uh, in, I think, Florida, where he did tell people he'd been in, in World War II and had been wounded and gotten a Purple Heart. He was lying to his coworkers about his military record. Right. Um, that may also be another one of those situations because he was a deserter that he used the 1928 birth date to try and hide from the Marines who were going to be looking for him because he was AWOL. Right, right. And the excerpt that you so, says, I work for the CID, the Criminal Investigation Division. Uh, it does say something yeah, about, and I have been wounded more than once, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Um, you know, that's something he may have been telling coworkers. He may have been telling women. Uh, but, you know, I, I don't know that that we don't know that that's true. That might be what he told right. people, but it was not true. It may be what he said in his book, but it was not true. And again, this quote, we don't even know where in the book that is. He could have started telling right. people that in the 1960s. Or later in the 1950s. Yeah, good point. So, and you know, another interesting thing we want to—I want to point out uh, another thing. One of the absolutes that Cameron talked about was how he always killed on holidays, Christian holidays like Halloween, which isn't a Christian holiday, um, Christmas and Easter. And yet June 5th is there's no Christian holidays around that around that time period. December 11th. Well, it's right before Christmas, but uh, you know, it's in the advent yeah. calendar. But I don't even think December 11th is in the advent calendar of 12 days. <laughs> it's right before the advent calendar starts. You know when you start right. opening the little the little thing, um, January sixth and seventh, no Christian holiday. Well, okay, Feast of the Epiphany is on January sixth, so I'll give him that one. January ninth to fifteenth, no Christian holiday. So again, he's talking in absolutes that Edwards always did this, and yet the first four, three out of four cases. No Christian holiday. Right. And he and he freaking goes out and you know, I, I mean when he, when he's wrong and blatantly wrong, it just seems like he changes the facts to be like, Oh well I know I was wrong but this is why No, that's the thing. He'll, like up. I said, he he doesn't he doesn't even allow for the fact that he might be wrong. And you know, I and this is why I didn't want to have him on the show because I don't want to do this to his face. Right. <laughs> okay. I don't want it to be confrontational like that. Because if he if he were here, he would be extremely defensive. 
So oh, absolutely. Uh, the next the next murder we have is 1951. His timeline lists Santa Rosa, but that's where the victim lived. The victim was actually killed in Fort Walton, Florida. Uh, the man's name was Romeo Baudry. He was killed on Easter Sunday. He was shot four times in the face, neck, and chest in a standard oil gas station during a robbery. Now, and to again, be fair, to be fair, Lisa, the the excerpt this time at least has a gas station and a uh, and a robbery in it. And a robbery. But it has him telling the guy, put your hands down because he doesn't want people outside. And it ends with the cash register being opened and coins sailing over the room. And I'm sure if I went to the book, it would continue with Edwards taking the money and leaving the gas station with the man unharmed. And, again, this is taken out of context. It doesn't even show or say where this happened or when it happened. Right. Um, Eight in the evening on Easter Sunday in March 1951, I don't think there would have been a gas station open in Florida. This doesn't say it was a Sunday. Yeah, you know, I mean, yeah. We don't have so, 24 hour conditions in the paper. Right. And actually, there's there's not a lot known about the case. It is, it remains unsolved. But at one point, Mr. Beaudry's wife and two other men were suspects in the murder. Is this one that you may be able to look at as plausible or is this still one that you think not a not a chance well he was probably he was probably in that area but i i don't think because again even what he's writing about in the book he doesn't kill the guy right well, I mean, I don't think it's going to be like, hey, dude, I killed this dude. You know, to be fair, devil's well, advocate. Yeah, but, I, I mean, it's still, like I said, it's, it's, I, I don't, I think it's a, it's a leap to say that this right. excerpt is describing this murder. Right, right. And, and I mean, the, I agree. the police I believe that the wife, there were problems in the marriage and that the wife arranged for someone to kill her husband for her. They were never able to prove it, but that was the theory. I will say this, and, you know, this ain't setting the bar high, but this is probably the most plausible one he has presented thus far. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, like I said, it ain't setting the bar high, but... I mean, right, it's right. And, but, you know, again, the reason it's, it may seem plausible is because we can't find out enough about it. Right. The fact to that see. The fact that, you know, he did have that excerpt leads me to believe it's plausible, but, right. I mean, hell, that's not going to get you but, a conviction in any court. Right. And, you know, and, but you got to remember, too, Florida's a death penalty state. 
And Ed Edwards, when he was eventually caught, wanted the death penalty. Mm-hmm. So why would he not cop so to this he... one? Very good point. Very good point. I see your point. Um, and then the next one is Boulder, Colorado. In 1954, a woman by the name of Dorothy Gay Howard. Um, that's another one. There's not a lot of information available online. It was in 1954 on April 6th. Um, don't know whether that would have been around Easter or or not. Um, it was in Boulder, Colorado. He may have been I, in Denver around that time. And he What's goes that? back to the same. He goes back to the same kind of vague excerpt from a book. Like this doesn't necessarily. Yeah, Edwards is talking about a chick stealing or conning him out of money. But stealing money, cool. right? Exactly. That makes no right. sense. But anyway. Yeah. And apparently, that's Edwards again. That's one of those. Yeah. Uh, uh, again, that's one of those where I think there was a lot of confer- confirmation bias. Um. So. Right. Uh, okay. She Dorothy Gay Howard was apparently not identified immediately. She was only identified right. by DNA. Uh, yeah, because it shows she was found in 1954 uh, in a, on a creek in Boulder. Um, it's believed that she may have been killed by Harvey Glattman, who was executed in California. And had been first recognized as one of the nation's, or was one of the nation's first recognized serial killers. Mm-hmm. She had run away from home uh, in in Arizona. She had been married to an older man, and came to to Denver, Boulder area. Um, but I don't think they've ever identified a suspect because they couldn't identify the victim. Uh oh. Ah. I'm 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 looking I'm looking ahead. Uh, I'm looking ahead. Harvey here. Glattman. Uh, yeah. By the way, uh, July Fourth isn't a uh, isn't a Christian holiday. By the way, just on that out there. Uh, yeah. This next thing <laughs> I actually have an argument about. Just looking at the What's sketch, that? we may have an argument. Which sketch? Uh, Marilyn Shepard. Putting oh. it on my side like that, it looks plausible. Wait a second. Ah, uh, wait a second. Wait a second. It keeps, it keeps going back to the freaking oh, homepage. Canada? Yeah. Okay. Uh, 1950 to 59, go down. Uh, it's right underneath the excerpts. Oh, you got to be kidding me, Michael. You don't First think of so? all, 
the pictures are not when you have a compare when you want to do a comparison, you don't have a full on facial composite drawing with a photograph of somebody kind of to the side. Right. You have them well, face on, face on. I will say profile, profile. I do notice, I do notice differences. Edwards does not have spiky hair. It looks like this. I mean, and this could have been uh-huh. just a shitty artist, but it looks like the artist right. has somebody who doesn't have their hair parted like Edwards. But other than that, yeah. I mean, I see plausibilities. But here. if you look, I do see If you look at, and you know what? Put the picture up. Get another picture. Go to open a new page. Get the full on the night at the top of the nineteen fifty fifty nine timeline. Mm-hmm. There's the picture, the full on picture. Look, the Edwards' one. nose is more. Yeah, the center picture. Edwards' nose is more Roman than mm-hmm. flat. This guy has a flat nose. Yeah. Okay. Uh, Edwards has fuller cheeks. This guy has kind of gaunt cheeks. Edwards' his hair is totally different. Edwards has a thick, thick neck. This guy has a proportional neck. My ex-husband had a thick, thick neck. It was impossible to buy shirts for him. Right. Because I'd have to buy a size too big, and we'd have to have him tailored. Because his neck was so freaking big to hold up his fat head. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, once again, yeah. not setting the bar high, but I mean, he's getting better as he's going through the years here, I guess. I mean, this one. Well, this one yeah, but a, again, <laughs> he, you know, he's he's confirmation bias. Um, Marilyn right. Shepard, and again, the 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 excerpt that he claims is about Marilyn Shepard's murder is about a woman with a daughter who was living with him and I think that's the part where he was beating somebody right or the woman or the woman with a daughter who was who the woman with the daughter who was cheating on him and snuck in the house and then he beat shit out of her Marilyn Shepard was married, lived with her husband, had a son, was pregnant. Mm-hmm. Right, and her um, husband was laying right next to her. her no, was, her I, husband had fallen asleep downstairs on the couch and slept through his wife being beaten to death in the bedroom upstairs. He allegedly awoke up, heard her calling his name, a la Jeffrey McDonald, ran upstairs, was overcome by an attacker who left him unconscious, regained consciousness, went outside, and tussled with the guy on the beach who kicked his ass again, and then he lay unconscious Mm -hmm. on the beach with his feet in the water. Right. Um, all these letters that he has on the website, 
okay, the, the letter, somebody offers to plead guilty to the murder to save Shepard's son. Mind you, they own there's that nothing job here. The, there's nothing here that indicates it would be Edward Edwards. Although this could potentially be a scam if Edwards was in the Ohio area at the time. But it appears right. that he was actually in Texas. Or Denver, mm-hmm. Colorado, because this is, you know, less than three months after the killing in Boulder. Um, right. It doesn't look like I, I don't know that he was back in. I mean, this is this is something. What what on this letter indicates that it's Edward Edward Edwards? And then. I agree. Please read this in regard to Dr. Shepard. My late husband, who was an attorney, well, that's not a man. That's a woman. Right. I guess you got to read between the lines and all sorts of stuff. Yeah. I mean, this is, and, you know, the Maryland Shepard case, Sam Shepard's conviction was overturned by the federal district court because of the publicity in the case that brought out crazy shit like these letters. Right. So, uh, you know, I just, I, I still think Sam Shepard did it. Um, because I just don't find it plausible for a grown man to sleep through his wife being beaten to death. And then, you know, and, and then he he calls the mayor to come to the house, sends the wife of the mayor upstairs when he knows Marilyn's dead. And he gave a lot of inconsistent statements as to what happened, when it happened, how it happened. Now I'm not I'm not sure where you are on the page, but there's a quote unquote description of Marilyn Shepherd's bedroom in his book and he calls her Barbara, I guess, in the book. Again, see that's the thing. In the book, Barbara had a daughter. And they were actually that wasn't even in Ohio. They were living together somewhere else, I think in Texas. Right. So how can it be Marilyn Shepard when Marilyn Shepard didn't have a daughter and never lived with Edwards in Texas? Marilyn Shepard lived in Ohio. The house in Bay Village, Ohio, where she was killed, was in her name. She lived in Ohio with Sam Shepard, her husband. So how can that excerpt be about Marilyn Shepard? When it, the woman is his name, Marilyn, the woman has a daughter, and he doesn't kill her. She's apparently cheating on him, and she sneaks him, and he beats the shit out of her cheating on him. I think John is operating under the assumption that Ed 
change names of people. And, I mean, that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah, but again, this is in Dallas. He awakened from a sound sleep to find her missing. He goes looking for her. He waited with the lights out until 3.30 in the morning when a taxi drove up and she tiptoed into the house. Right. And once again, I'm not saying it's plausible. And she had a story about going to get a ring. So how how can this be about Marilyn Shepard when she didn't live with Edwards? He's writing about a woman he was living with. Right. I would agree. Well, once again, like I said, I just said read the actual read the actual passages. It has nothing to do with Marilyn Shepard. Right. I would agree. I would definitely agree. I mean, I don't understand a lot of this stuff he's come up with, but, you know, like I said, I think maybe he's, I think I've finally gotten to the point where I think he's operating under the assumption of, well, Edwards changed the names and the details so he could remain innocent and play this game with the cops or whatever. Because that was one of his big things was, Edwards was always playing cat and mouse with the cops, hiding in plain sight. Lisa, did your phone die? Lisa. Ladies and gentlemen, I think that's... uh, Log Talk's way of telling us that uh, it's time to get off of here, I guess. Um, I'm going to go ahead and wrap us up for the night. Uh, we're going to be back next week with more, but uh, I do want – oh, I think Lisa may be back. Lisa, can you hear me? Lisa, is your phone on mute? Lisa, I'm still not hearing anything. I'm going to go ahead and wrap it up. I apologize, everybody, for the technical difficulties as we wrap up here. I'm not hearing anything from Miss Lisa. So we're going to go ahead and wrap things up. Um, Thank you, of course, for listening to Clear and Convincing with Lisa O'Brien and myself, Michael Carnahan. If you do like our show and want to know more, uh, you can always find us on Facebook or you can go to our blog at clearandconvincingpodcast.wordpress.com. Or you can follow Lisa on Twitter at O'Brien L. Ann. 
I do want you to uh, listen to us next week, uh, August 12th at 8 p.m. for episode 24 of this season two, uh, Edward Wayne Edwards part two. Uh, we'll continue talking about the murders allegedly committed by Edwards. And uh, we're also going to talk about the 1977 Ohio double murder and the 1980 Wisconsin double murder Edwards admitted to killing after DNA linked him to the Wisconsin murders and he was arrested in July of 2009. Until then, ladies and gentlemen, have a great week and good night.